This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So I've been thinking a lot about death this week, uh, not really because I had COVID, which was no fun at all, but because here at the end of Genesis, death is coming squarely into view. You see, as a preacher, I don't just say whatever I want. I don't pick topics to preach on and do topical sermons. When I work on a sermon, my concerns have to be what the text of Scripture is concerned with. In Genesis 48, we see Jacob on his deathbed, and soon he will die. Soon, too, we'll read about Joseph's death. And so, because our focal text is concerned with death, as a preacher, I have, rightly so, turned my focus and attention in that direction, too. Now, if you're a good student of Scripture, you'll do the same. You'll make your focus what the text and our study of it focuses on. Today, that just so happens to be death, even though Jacob doesn't officially die until the next chapter. So, death. It's it's not a topic that we like to talk about or like to think about. Many of us actually spend an entire lifetime trying to trick ourselves into forgetting about death. But here's the thing. What do you want to leave behind when you die? If you have kids, what do you want to leave them? How do you want them to remember you? Or how about a spouse or other family or friends? Now, all of you adults, you're certainly familiar with the idea of a will. You write up a list before you die of which children will receive which of your belongings. And as we all know, that can be incredibly divisive in a family. It can rip a family apart after someone dies. When you write a will, you have to be really wise and really careful. But I want to suggest to you something different, a different kind of will for you to leave your loved ones, especially children, regardless of whether they're adult children or youth or really young. And for that reason, uh, uh, sorry, and for that reason, I have reason to believe that of all my sermons from Genesis, for some of you, this one may be the most memorable. Now, you may have never heard of what I'm referring to, but I, I want to encourage you to do it, to, to practice it, to give it a try. It's called an ethical will. And that's actually our word of the week, ethical will. An ethical will is not a list of things that you want to leave each specific child or family member, but the intent is to leave specific family members with specific values that were important to you while you were living. It's been called a a legacy of intangibles. If a traditional will is about the dispersing of your belongings, the ethical will is about the dispersing of your heart, your heart mind, the dispersing of your values and your beliefs. For instance, whereas a traditional will might say something like, you know, to little Timmy, I leave my baseball cards. To Samantha, I leave my cherished 67 Chevy. To Billy, I leave my favorite fishing gear and boat, and so on, right? An ethical will is different. In 1854, a father wrote these words to his son 
in his ethical will. Always seek to keep your conscience clear. That is, never commit an action which you'll have to regret afterward. Think carefully about everything you contemplate before doing its execution. Consider its consequences, so that you'll act only after due consideration. A sure test of a clear conscience is an unclouded temperament and a cheerful spirit. Since you have received both from nature, seek to preserve them. And I should say, too, that an ethical will is not only for one's children. It can be for a spouse, family members, close friends, co-workers, etc. In fact, in some cases, clergy have even left ethical wills for the congregations they serve. And of course, the thing about an ethical will is it must be written before one's dead. And so some thought has to be given to it. And again, I would encourage you to think about doing this yourself. This, friends, is what I want you to hold in your mind as we lean into today's focal passage, Genesis 48. We have this chapter and two more, and then we're finished with Genesis. But let's read. Genesis 48, one's where we pick up. And afterward came forth these words to Joseph, saying, Behold, your father is sick. And so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, there's a lot to glean from just this one verse. It, it might not seem like it, but I want to show you how a close reading of this one verse can bring so much to light. So dial in with me here. All right, so whenever we start a sentence with, and afterward, we need to ask, and after what? Well, if we look back to the end of the previous chapter, this takes place sometime after Joseph grabs daddy's family jewels and makes him vow to bury him in Canaan. So this is sometime after that scene, after that first private meeting, no pun intended. Now, there's another question we have to ask here. How did these words get to Joseph? You see that? There are various strands uh, of interpretive tradition and thought about this. Some say uh, the wife Bilhah uh, brought the words to Joseph. Others say that a brother of Joseph did that. Uh, some say a servant of Joseph brought the words to Joseph. Some say Ephraim. Some say a rumor. Others say, well, we, we can't even know for sure, which is probably closest to the truth. Though it is kind of fun to think that it might have been Ephraim and that Ephraim has been, been spending time with his grandpa. He then went back and told his dad, Joseph, that, that Grandpa Jacob was sick. And when, when he does, Joseph uh, takes both sons back, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. There's something else this also tells us. Joseph wasn't with Jacob, right? He wasn't with him. He lived apart from him. He was distant from him, at least at this point. And although the rest of the family is in Goshen, Joseph seems to stay back in the city. And I think that's a bit telling. As I was suggesting last week, while this family ultimately stays together for a while, the rift between Jacob and Joseph runs deep. Joseph, or sorry, Jacob is dying, disappointed in his son. He's so disappointed in his son, in fact, that as we shall see today, he nearly disowns him. And if you've ever been a parent, an auntie, an uncle, a foster parent, etc., you know the deep disappointment and hurt that children can bring. And everyone deals with that differently, too. There's no one-size-fits-all answer. The Joseph-Jacob relationship doesn't give us such an answer either. In fact, his action, right, is pretty radical. He is, as I said, almost going to cut Joseph out of the picture, 
and instead take to his grandsons in his son's place. I know a lot of grandparents these days who've actually become sole caregivers for the grandchildren in their old age, essentially adopting them at a point in life when they should have been taking it a bit easier. This kind of reminds me of that. We are reminded family. Family's hard. Even when family stays together like this one, or maybe especially when family stays together, it's hard. It's tough, it's stressful, it's exhausting. And that's often the case when they don't stay together too. Uh, More on these dynamics as uh, we continue. Also, I wanna point out something very significant here, the order of the brothers' names. They're in the correct birth order here. Manasseh first, the older, and Ephraim second, the younger. And that'll be important for what's about to happen. You'll see it in just a moment. Well, that's a lot just from this first verse. You see, scripture is so rich, we just have to be close readers, ask lots of good questions. Let's keep reading. Pick up at verse two. And it was reported to Jacob saying, behold, your son Joseph comes to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Now, this follows the same structure as the first verse, the previous verse. Did you notice that? In the previous verse, a report goes out, Joseph receives it, and he begins... And he begins with, behold, well, here the same happens, but just with Jacob. Also, did you notice that the narrator begins the verse by calling the father Jacob, but then after Joseph shows up and Joseph is introduced, the narrator calls him Israel. Again, the lines may be blurring between tribe and nation, because remember, Jacob is used when it's referring to him as the the father of the family of the tribe, but Israel, when it's indicating him as having to do with the nation or being the nation's leader. So there's some blurring of the lines between tribe and nation, perhaps. But what is clear is that Israel, the leader of the nation, he musters up the strength to rise up. And it's as if he has done so in the interest of or on behalf of the budding nation. That's very telling, too. Here on his deathbed, his interests are the budding nation and its longevity. They come squarely, that comes squarely into view. Even as we're reminding, we're reminded Uh, that the budding nation is growing out of one family, it seems to be that the nation is coming into view very much. And I also think it's interesting that the narrator is, in a sense, contrasting this small growing nation, perhaps with the nation of Egypt, which Joseph helps lead. Eventually, If we keep reading Exodus, we realize it's this small nation that through theological eyes wins out over Egypt. Huge nation already. So let's keep reading. We'll pick up at verse 3. Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan or Canaan and blessed me and said to me, look, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you. And I'll make of you a company of peoples and I'll give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. A part of what we get here and in the next few verses are some flashbacks to chapters like Genesis 35 where Jacob encountered God at Luz, also called Bethel, Bayit El, house of God. I love that Jacob refers to God here as El Shaddai. It's actually what he was called in Genesis 35, 11 in the encounter where Jacob encountered God. Many people translate El Shaddai as God Almighty. That's fine. 
I suppose. Some go as far as using terms like omnipotent. But really, in Hebrew, the word Shaddai, the plural form of Shad, has to do with a mountain. Shad, mountain. That's one way to say mountain. And of course, in Genesis, the story starts on a mountain, you recall. The ark of Noah lands on a mountain, and later the temple, uh, as we get further into the story of the Pentateuch, the temple um, will, sorry, further in the Old Testament, the temple will be built on a mountain, and Jesus at his return will descend from the mountain. The mountain is indicative of God's protective presence. And here's something fascinating. El Shaddai, this God of mountains, is used several times in Genesis. And each time it's used, it's in the context of God helping the people fulfill his original command. Be fruitful and multiply. This is also why some seem to connect El Shaddai to fertility too, particularly the chest, mountains, I'm not sure about that, but it's almost as if God is saying on the mountain, it was just me and your ancestors, Adam and Eve, but I'd always intended for it to be more. I'm still the God of the mountain. I still want more of you with me on the mountain. Be faithful and I'll help you see this through. I am El Shaddai. You are my Shaddites, my mountain people. Well, that's encouraging. We continue. We pick up at verse five. Now, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before, before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Watch this. Ephraim and Manasseh. Even as Reuben and Simeon will be mine. Well, you remember that Reuben is the oldest. He's the firstborn. Simeon was the secondborn. So catch what he's doing there. And then he goes on, your offspring, whom you become the father of after them, will be yours. Wait, what? <laughs> They will be called after the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan or Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to come to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, Bayitlehem, house of bread. So what? In, in the previous verses, Jacob was talking about his time in Luz, Bethel, uh, that was verse 4. And if we skip verses 5 and 6, that is, if we go straight from 4 to 7, that's what it sounds like, right? It, it just makes sense. And said to me, look, I'll make you fruitful and multiply and multiply you. And I'll make you of a company of peoples and I'll give you this land to your offspring uh, after you for an everlasting possession. As for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to come to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So you see, if we go from four to seven, the story just rolls smoothly. It makes sense, a coherent accounting of the past. But instead, Jacob interrupts the telling of his past to make a statement in the present with verses five and six. Now, your two sons... <clears throat> who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. This is present tense. Ephraim and Manasseh. <clears throat> Even as Reuben and Simeon will be mine, your offspring, whom you become the father of after them, will be yours. They will be called after the name of their brothers and their, their inheritance. Is he just sneaking this in there? Was Joseph like, wait, what, 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 what did you just say? 
that back up to the thing about my kids becoming yours. Interesting, but it, it seems like there's something going on, doesn't it? Jacob starts with the past, recaps his life in a nutshell, right? God encountered me, said he'd help me fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. I saw Rachel, your mother, and I loved her, but she died way too early. She should have had more children. And since she didn't, and I didn't with her, I'm effectively making your two sons our sons, mine and Rachel's sons. They're now my sons. And since Joseph doesn't have much of a say in the matter, Jacob makes it formal. He turns the moment into one of a ritual ceremony. That's what's going on here. By the way, notice that he mentions Ephrath, which actually may share the, the root of the name Ephraim. But another name for Ephrath is Bethlehem, which, as I said, means house of bread, Bayit Lechem. It's kind of ironic because during the famine, Egypt became the house of bread. Not Israel, not Canaan, not the promised land, but Egypt. So it's, there's an irony there. It's kind of interesting. There may be more to that, but I'm not going to spend much time on it. We're just going to continue reading with the story here. Israel, we pick up at verse 8. Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? Well, I guess there's a different way we could, we could ask the question, who are these? Who are these? Who are these? Who are these? All right, so we got, we got to play with how do we ask this question? We'll come back to this. But Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me. He said, please bring them to me and I'll bless them. Now, I, th I think this is possibly formal language, like at a wedding when the minister asks, who gives this bride away? And he already knows the answer. Everyone in the room knows the answer, but it's the specific language that makes it a formal ceremony, right? And we all know that. Who are these? Well, he already knows. But Joseph ritually says it explicitly. So I think it's formal. Style. Who are these? And then Joseph responds with, I think, probably a formal voice. These are my sons whom God has given me here. Very formal. And do you notice twice Joseph says that they're his, but in a sense, not for much longer. Jacob continues the ceremony, bring them to me and I will bless them. So follow along here. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 10. Now the eyes of Israel were dim from age so that he couldn't see. And Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I didn't think I would see your face. And look, God has let me see your offspring also. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. Do you see what just happened there? Do you notice the order of names now. Now it's Ephraim first, even though he's the youngest, and Manasseh second, even though he's the oldest. The name order has been inverted. And as good as a good reader of Genesis, you should be thinking, oh no, not this again. Why does this family keep doing this, inverting the birth order? Doesn't Jacob, of all people, know better? Every time the younger has been shown favor over the older, it never has gone well but not so fast. Something different happens here. 
Notice how the formal blessing ceremony continues. The boys come forward, bow between Jacob's knees, and Joseph places them in a certain in certain strategic places. He's always strategizing. He tries to place Ephraim the younger by Jacob's left hand, and he tries to place uh, Manasseh the older by Jacob's right hand. He's trying to play by the rules of primogeniture, a previous word of the week, if you remember, indicating that the special rights and privileges of the firstborn, maintaining birth order. And now we get to the heart of it all. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, uh, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding (laughs) his hands knowingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the agent who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And let my name be named on them. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, let them grow into a multitude upon the land. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. He held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's hand. Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. His father refused and said, I know my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother will be greater than he and his offspring will become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day saying, Israel will bless you saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, look, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I've given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. So there you have it. Joseph brought the boys forward to Jacob under the law of primogeniture. He was strategizing oldest Manasseh by Jacob's right hand and Ephraim the younger by Jacob's left. But Jacob, knowing this, crosses his hands and puts his right on Ephraim and blesses him essentially to be a king. That's what the right hand signifies. And his left on Manasseh, blessing him to be abundant and offspring too. This ticks Joseph off and he asks for a redo. And daddy says, no. Joseph's engineering and strategizing fails again. You notice that? Whenever Abraham tried to self-engineer things, it never went well. And when Joseph tries to do it, it never goes well. But in these stories, when humans are yielding to God and consulting him and following his lead, it does go well. And that's the thing. We still have to yield to God and consult him. We can't just go about it on our own or be devising our own strategy because if we do, it won't end well. And I've wrestled a lot with that. Am I allowed to plan? Yes, of course, if I plan with God. And then it's like, so so how do I know if something's just for me or if it's from God? Well, I might not. But did I consult him genuinely? If so, then I can take a step and trust that he'll go with 
right? Well, what about when I'm doing something? How much of it should be me working as opposed to God working? 99% God, 1% me, 50-50. Here's what I have learned. There is no equation. Here's how it works. Have you yielded this and surrendered this to God, yielded yourself and surrendered yourself to God? Is his will first? Then that's it. Go. Trust that he'll go with you. Trust he'll meet you and guide you and lead you. You have to yield yourself and the thing to him first. And here's something else I really want you to see from this story today. This is rich, super rich. In verse 20, we read Jacob's blessing. It's simple. It's easy to miss, y'all. God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. That short line, eight words in English, four words in Hebrew. God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. It doesn't seem so significant, does it? But that's how Jacob blesses these boys. And you know what? For 3,700 years, that's how Jewish fathers have blessed their sons every weekend during the Sabbath. They have a separate saying for the girls, but frankly, I see no reason we can't say this over girls too. That's my take. Anyway, these words are supposed to uh, are supposed to be spoken over them. And here's here's how it sounds uh, in Hebrew. It's very very beautiful. But why say this? Why is the blessing itself? God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Why is it? Why is that blessing here? Why is it the blessing that's persisted for nearly 4,000 years in Judaism? Why isn't it a blessing we say on a weekly basis to our children and the people we love too? I think we should. Because here's the thing. The simple line is super deep. Let me just give you five reasons. I think this is so, so powerful. First, why isn't this mentioning more significant people like Abraham and Isaac, etc.? To many, Ephraim and Manasseh seem kind of obscure. Not as well known. True, but Ephraim does come to be a king and he comes to rule the northern kingdom in later Israelite history. That's not really my answer. My answer is this. In Genesis, all along, we've seen this theme of a feud between older and younger brothers. The younger is always wanting the blessing and birthright and privilege and position of the older. And it's always created problems, right? But here's the thing. This is the first time in Genesis it doesn't. Did you notice this? That the two boys don't fight when it happens? They don't jockey over position? They don't bicker? This is the first time. And they're both fine with it. They're united in the purpose. It isn't about getting ahead of one another or getting over the other. It's about God's cause for these two. Why shall we say this blessing? May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh? Because Those boys put God before themselves in this moment. This is a blessing about making God first. Leads into the second point. In the scene, unlike others, the brothers are actually blessed at the same exact time, not different times. And they share the blessing. They're blessed together. This is a blessing about unity. And here's the third point. Do you remember what the name of the first son, Manasseh, meant? The oldest born? Remember what what it meant when Joseph named him? amnesia, forget the past. And so to speak this blessing, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh is in part like saying, may God help you forget the troubles of your past such that he can redeem them. And I know many need to hear that. Your past doesn't define you. Your identity in Christ defines you. May you let go of the old you, the past you, the former you that drags you down, that shames you, that brings guilt and condemnation on you. May God make you like Manasseh. 
May you leave that at his feet and let him make it part of his redemption story. This is a blessing about God redeeming our past. Here's a fourth point. The other name, Ephraim, it means fruitful or more literally double fruit or double portion. He's the second born son. And if Ephraim is in a sense trying to forget the, or so Manasseh's in a sense trying to forget the past, then Ephraim has to do with looking toward the present and toward the future, a double portion. And I think there's something to this. May God make you like Ephraim, provided for in the present and supplied for in the future. May God make you fruitful. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about being fruitful and living as a child of God. Ephraim became a king. He was sustained, as were his children, his family for many years. This is a blessing about being sustained and provided for. And there's a fifth point. Please don't miss this. Remember, Manasseh and Ephraim were both born in Egypt, outside Israel, outside Canaan, outside the promised land. And Jacob takes them as his own. They will form two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph doesn't get a tribe named for him. His sons do, though. These boys, born in Egypt, born of an Egyptian woman, are taken in by Jacob. But as they're taken in by Jacob, they're also taken out, in a sense. What do I mean? Well, remember I said last week that Jacob was so disappointed in how Egyptian Joseph had become? Well, this is counteracting that. He takes his two sons and integrates them thoroughly into Israelite life and culture and belief. And here's what I'm saying. Jacob takes these two boys born in Egypt, but Israelites nonetheless, and in speaking this blessing over them, he's saying essentially, boys, you've been born in Egypt, but you're part of God's people. You're Israelites. You may live here in Egypt as we all do at the moment, but you are to be set apart. You are to be different. And so this is the fifth thing. This is a blessing about being committed first and foremost to God, no matter where you live or where you are. So let me recap this part of what seems like Jacob's ethical will here. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, which is in fact our bottom line this week. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Ya semecha Elohim, ka Ephraim vecha manishah. May you be about God's desires first. May you be united. May you allow God to redeem your past. May you allow God to sustain and provide. And may you, living in a land where most people don't put God first, be committed and allegiant to him and put him first. And framing all of this, Jacob says too, may God bless them. May they be called by my name. May they be called by my ancestors' name. And may their numbers increase greatly. This isn't, of course, a formal ethical will, but it certainly comes close. The way this grandfather, who sort of becomes adoptive father, blesses his two grandchildren, the way they become children, it's moving, it's inspiring. And as I come to a close here today, I just, I thought I might just end in a similar fashion with my own ethical will at this point in my life, at least. I don't plan on dying anytime soon, but this I found was really helpful for me to stop and reflect on this week as I was preparing this message. Again, as I state, as I, I stated at the start of the sermon, I think it could be really useful for you folks too. I mentioned that an ethical will bequeaths one's values and beliefs to those they care about, spouses, children, and even ministers to congregations. And so I'm going to end with this today, friends. Inspired by Jacob, here's my ethical will at this point in my life. And if any of you ever want insight on how to write one of these ethical wills, let me know. I can certainly uh, give you some pointers on it. Dear Christy and children, 
Four-letter words get a bad rap these days. There are a handful of them in the English language that unfortunately get more airtime than they deserve. And so I want to offer some alternatives, better four-letter words, if you will, here in my ethical will. So for you as a family, I offer two. First four-letter word, read. Each of you read the scriptures daily. Read them closely. Ask questions. Go on tangential adventures. Go down the rabbit trails. Never be afraid to ask anything. God's not afraid of your questions. Everything's fair game. God will use your reading and questioning to draw you deeper into his presence if you let him. That's been much of the secret of my long-lasting relationship with God. Never let anyone forbid you from asking questions of God or the scriptures. Read. Second four-letter word, pray. Nearly every day for as long as I can remember, I've tried to make my first and last waking thoughts and words, thank you, Lord, for another day of life. A simple morning and evening prayer. I know y'all don't see me praying a lot, but I do. I love writing my prayers, a practice that I would hope that each of you engage in. Few things have been as rewarding in my spiritual life as writing my prayers. Pray. I've had a good life to say... To say this, though, is not to dismiss life's many challenges, disappointments, and heartaches. It's simply to say that God, who is indeed a good, good father, has been there all along. I've learned that we often think we need more than we do. And the reality is the only necessary thing is God's presence. And I hope you'll seek that all the days of your lives. And with that, I have a four-letter word for each of you. So the third four-letter word for Christy, care. Continue to care for people like you always have. I've seen you care for your children, even in the most difficult of circumstances. I've seen you care for me when I didn't think I could go on anymore. And while I've not seen you in action in the various hospitals you've worked in, based on what your colleagues and patients have said and you've shared, I know you've cared for many people well, even when they took advantage of it and didn't care for you in return. I have perhaps encountered God's presence more in you, Christy, than anyone else. And while I wonder if God himself could match your level of sarcasm, you're the greatest gift God has given me in this life. To say that I've had a good life is in large part only possible because you've been a part of it. You love me through some of the craziest ups and downs a marriage could ever see. You personify care. Never stop caring. Care. Fourth four-letter word for Lydia. Kind. For nearly 15 years, you've taught me what it looks like to be kind. Your thoughtfulness toward others has been genuinely kind. For 15 years, every night when I've put you to bed, I've said the same prayer. Mom loves you. Dad loves you. Jesus loves you. And one day you'll be one of the greatest women in all of church history. And I still believe that deeply. I'll still keep praying that. And I believe it'll flow out of your kindness. That's how it'll happen. Remember, God has given you that kindness and you are to steward it and to use it for his glory. And to not let your kindness be mistaken by others for weakness. You aren't called to let people push you around and mistreat you. Sometimes kindness looks like putting your foot down and standing up for yourself or up standing up for others. Continue to be kind, Lydia. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Fifth four-letter word for Emusha. Hope. For five years, your mother and I fought to get you out of an awful and dire situation. And when we finally did, it seemed too much for you. We spent 
a year with you and it was full of pain and struggle. And I hope that in your current situation, things are good. I hope you've learned to cope. I hope your future is bright. I hope you can be a good Christian woman. I hope your past doesn't haunt you or define you. I hope you are filled with hope. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Yasa Elohim ka Ephraim veka Manasseh. Sixth four letter word for Silas. True. Learn the art, son, early in life of being true to God, no matter what. When you do that, you'll also learn what it is to be true to your truest self. Speak truth, live truth, don't lie. Don't embrace lies. Don't believe false things about yourself. Don't be fooled by popularity and prestige. Stay true to God. Stay true to your family. Stay true to yourself. Many people will want you to be like them, and you may be enticed to do just that. Don't stay true. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Yasemek Elohim Ephraim Vecha Manisha. Seventh four-letter word for Ashi. Give. When it comes to respect, give everybody respect. Everybody, especially women, especially your mother. You must give every woman, every man, every classmate, every auntie, every uncle, every animal, and everything we own the respect it deserves. When it comes to your emotions, give yourself time to cool down. Step back, take a breath, give yourself some space and time. When it comes to work ethic, give it all you've got. Never be lazy, never do a job halfway, never complain about working, but instead give thanks to God for your job, your hands, your arms, your legs, and your breath to do it. Give yourself boundaries and structure and you'll have an excellent life. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Eighth four-letter word for the bridge. Deep. If you would, actually go ahead and turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. May the bridge be a place where Jesus is at the center. We give the Spirit more to work with, and we live intentionally. May we always be about deep study deep prayer, deep service, and deep community. May we never just play church. May we not be shallow Christians. May we not be fake. May we be deep. May we be real. Bridge Church, may God make you like Ephraim and Vanessa. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.